Welcome to the Chick Monks Podcast, where we explore contemplative Christianity from a feminine perspective. I'm your host, Heather Lawrence. Let's get to it. Hello, Chickmunks 2022. You did it. You made it to the future. Look, I know everything isn't great and sunny and things have been really scary and overwhelming for a lot of us over the last couple of years, but you're here and you did it and you've made it this far and I'm sure that you have grown through it. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you are in the place that you are. I'm grateful for the questions you're asking. I'm grateful for every moment that we choose to continue to be present and honest in what seems every day to be a unique challenge um, of this future that we really never imagined to be our reality. Um, So anyway, I'm here now with some sermons that I've written over the last few months and have finally gotten a chance to sit down and record for you. And my only hesitation about sharing them is that they correspond with specific Sundays over the last few months that have specific lectionary readings for them. So I hope this isn't going to be boring, but I thought it would be a good opportunity to just explain a few key words that may not be familiar to you. And that way I can also get off my chest that this isn't perfectly timed and make sense out of any anachronisms that may detract from what I would love to imagine would be the ultimate potency of hearing this sermon at the time that it was meant to be delivered. However, you and I both know that's not how the spirit works. That's not how truth works. That is not how time even works. So when I say lectionary, I'm referring to the set of readings that are prescribed for a specific Sunday. And those will be the readings that you would hear in church that day in any mainline Protestant service or any Roman Catholic service. They're not always the same lectionary across denominations, but a lot of times they are. So we have an Old Testament reading, Psalms, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading, all on the same Sunday that you would hear, at least I'll just speak for the Episcopal Church, at any Episcopal Church in America or any Anglican church around the world, which is pretty cool to know that you are stepping into the same set of readings with a lot of people. It's one of the more transcendent aspects of worship to me in mainline congregations that we are intentionally united with people around the world by hearing the same words and seeking truth together, even though we may not be together in space. The other word I want to throw out there is liturgy, specifically in regards to the liturgical calendar. So the word liturgy means work of the people. Liturgy is what we do when we come together to worship. So whether you have worshipped in a tradition like mine that has very structured prayers that we pray, a very specific way we move through the service, specific words around the sacrament of the Eucharist, all of that is liturgy. But even if you go to the kind of church that I used to go to, or you are familiar with the kind of church that doesn't seem to have any higher authority or any structure outside given structure that determines 
how the worship goes, well, you still have liturgy. You still have patterns you fall into. You still have words that you say every time. You still have structures. You still have rhythms into which you plug yourself and you kind of can turn your brain off, right? That's part of the beauty of liturgy is once you get used to it, it, you go on autopilot. And that's what makes space, I think, for us to meet with the Spirit. So to dramatically oversimplify, liturgy is the structure that we use when we worship. And I'll just leave it at that. But the way that we observe the liturgy, especially in some of the traditions I've been talking about, is oriented around a liturgical calendar, which begins every year with Advent. You may have heard the word Advent before. It refers to the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and then Christmas is its own season. And then after Christmas, you have another season called Epiphany, which celebrates the light that is shining into the darkness, the presence of God's light. And we celebrate Epiphany for a while until we come to Lent, which I'm sure you've also heard of. Lent is the season leading up to Easter. It's a season of anticipation, but primarily of penitence, just like Advent is a season of anticipating Christmas. And then after Lent, we have Easter. We have a short season of Easter. And then after Easter, you may recall in your Bible education, because I know you did Bible drills like I did, tell me about it. After Jesus is resurrected from the grave, he spends 40 days on earth, which is the season of Easter that we have, and then ascends to heaven. After his ascension, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit is poured out. If you've heard of tongues of fire, that's what we're talking about here. Pentecost is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 10 days after the ascension. And then Pentecost is the season that carries us through into what we call very creatively ordinary time, which leads all the way back up to Advent. And we start all over again. So why do I tell you this? I tell you this because the sermon that I'm about to preach is an Advent sermon. So these sermons get very... um, how do I want to say it? They talk about end times a lot. They talk about repenting, about getting your heart right. This sermon is about John the Baptist and his sermon that led up to Jesus's ministry. So we're anticipating the coming of Christ, and that is the tone of this sermon. So I just wanted to place it in the liturgical year in case, honestly, you're interested in knowing how that kind of stuff works. Why do we have these different seasons? Why are all the fabrics that you see inside of a church building a different color based on the time of year that it is? Have you noticed that that's the case? Check out the stoles on the people presiding at the service the next time you go. Probably match the cloth that's on the altar because that's the kind of liturgical nerds that run this church. I digress. Now you've had an overview of the liturgical calendar. I hope your life is better for it. If not, thank you for enduring. And if you ever have questions about things that I talk about that are more in-depth than you think most other people would want to hear, I would love to try to answer your questions. And more than that, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. So please don't hesitate to reach out. You can always connect with me through my website, chickmonkspodcast.com. There's a contact tab there where you can get in touch with me, and I will be so excited to hear from you. So 
let's move on. I have a gospel passage from the book of Luke and a homily to share with you today. So together, let's arrive and prepare our hearts to consider some of the deeper realities of our lives. Let's take a breath in and out. Hear the reading from Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all people will see God's salvation. Here ends the reading. What comes to your mind when you think of the wilderness? Take a moment. Let your mind wander. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable and you're not driving. Let your mind wander to somewhere wild. What does it look like? Can you imagine the smell? Hear the sounds? Taste the air? Feel the presence of the environment on your skin? What does it feel like in the wilderness? In the Hebrew Bible, the wilderness is kind of a loaded term. It's a recurring theme and it comes to represent the Hebrew people's journeying, their wandering, and their suffering. Hebrew narrative is full of stories about Israel anticipating and arriving in and being exiled from the promised land. And every time they're on their way to their promised home, they have to pass through the unknown, through the wilderness, full of possible encounters with creatures of all kinds, exposed to the weather without much protection, vulnerable to attack, uncertain of where the next meal is coming from. Really, let's just call it what it is. The wilderness was full of possible ways to die. The wilderness, though, also means the desert. Not as in the climate so much as in a space that is deserted. The word used in Luke that we translate as wilderness literally means solitary, abandoned, desolate, 
It's the kind of unpredictable place no one knows. The wilderness is not easy. It's uncomfortable. And wilderness may mean these deserted places in the world around us as much as it represents the uncomfortable, deserted parts of our own inner lives. This abandoned place is where the word of God came to John the baptizer. His destiny was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah by turning the hearts of his people to God. And he waited in the desert until he heard from God that it was time. He had made a home in the wilderness. There's an Academy Award-winning documentary on Netflix called My Octopus Teacher. You've probably seen it. It documents the story of a filmmaker who begins freediving in the deep, cold Atlantic on the western cape of South Africa. Every day, holding his breath for six minutes at a time, he dives into an underwater kelp forest. And from his daily visits, he quickly knows the forest so well that he can draw a map of it on paper and in his head. He befriended the wilderness. And in the film, he articulates this longing he feels to go back every day because he's made a kind of home there. And in this watery wilderness, he encountered a creature whose relationship with him would change his life. In the unknown, we encounter the mystery of God. John's life is like this too. In the deserted places, John is met with the presence of God. The aloneness, the desolation, the uncertainty, and the fear that comes with it. Aren't these the times in our lives where we have most desperately sought the presence of God? The wilderness is uncomfortable, and it's the place where God's presence is the most radiant Because there, with all the uncertainty it contains, we really need God. And we can't ignore our need. But we live in a world where we can avoid the wilderness if we want to. Humans have gotten pretty good at this. For millennia, we've been building societies to distance ourselves from the mystery of the surrounding wilderness. We build walls, we build systems, we build structures. We don't have to deal with the unpredictable chaos out there. The wilderness, though, the wilderness that opens our hearts to God, isn't only the unknown out there. It's also the unknown in here, in our hearts. And the more our external lives remove us from the mystery of a life beyond our control, the more it's mirrored in our inner lives. We've separated ourselves from mystery in the name of ease and convenience. Comfort is always at our fingertips. And so are answers to all our most trivial questions for that matter. You didn't expect to get a lesson on liturgical worship today, but you did. Technology overwhelms us with information. Technology tells us we never have to feel the discomfort of our own need, or even of our own wondering, which makes it an even braver act when we do face our human limitations. 
With so many ways to detach ourselves from our own vulnerability, we can easily forget our need for God. If we don't want to explore our own deserted places, we can forget about it. Listen, I wish I were the kind of person who would free dive in a kelp forest or who would go on a crazy backpacking adventure through the Grand Canyon. I bet if I were, I'd have great stories to tell you about powerful encounters with God off the beaten path. But I'm not. I'm scared. I don't like not being able to see the creatures around me. I love it outside. And I would gladly spend most of my time there if I could. But I want to hike a clearly marked trail and see lots of other humans along the way. I want to enjoy the beauty in the sunlight and be back home before the sun goes down to sleep in my safe, warm bed where I do not fear every crack and sound I hear around me in the dark. Thank you very much. In other words, I'm not someone you want on your backpacking trip. So why? Why do you imagine I'm afraid of the wilderness? Because I don't go there. Because it's mysterious to me. Because to me, it's isolating and full of risk. But to someone who knows the wilderness, they can become a part of it. And it's not so scary. Because they are prepared. And so it is with our inner wilderness as well. Someone like John the Baptizer, who is intimately acquainted with the desolate places, can teach us how to prepare. And what is his message? Come, remember your pain. Remember your brokenness. Remember the places where you have believed God abandoned you, and in return you've abandoned your God. Repent. Turn back to God. Bring your anxieties and fears and cares and leave them with God. Be cleansed. Be loved. Be forgiven. John preaches new hope to a people who had been waiting for deliverance for so many generations that they forgot what they were even looking for. He says to his people, here it is. Wake up. Here's your chance to come home. You may have wandered off alone, away from God, away from one another, away into a lonely world of figuring it out on your own and not needing anything from anyone. But the home you're looking for is found by first stepping into the wilderness, where you embrace the unknown and surrender control. In the wilderness, You will feel vulnerable. You remember your need for God by practicing being vulnerable. In the wilderness, you will be faced with that which you would rather ignore in yourself. Because it will lead you to exactly where you are the most afraid and in the most need of love. Be brave. Cry out to God. And receive the new life in God's perfect love. John comes out of the wilderness to invite us into our own. 
wilderness is scary. The wilderness is also where we receive God's presence. And the wilderness is our way home. The Gospel reading at the beginning of this homily quoted words from Isaiah that were written as a promise for Israel during their exile in Babylon. These words were hope for a people who longed to return home. And it gave imagery of how God will guide the people through the wilderness to their home. And this is it, by lowering mountains and raising up valleys, making the ground even and the path straight. No more wandering in the wilderness. No more anxiety and lostness and longing for home. It will still be the wilderness, and it still might feel scary. But when we start moving towards God, God will prepare the way. You see, the promise that God gives her children is this. God has not and will not abandon you. And if we are willing to befriend our own wilderness so much that we could draw a map even from memory, we will see that even there, there's nowhere we can flee from the love of God, which is our home. Amen.